Shalom and welcome to the Jewish Mind, where the growth of modernity meets the timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. Today's lecture is called Jewish Nirvana, Achieving Beyond Paradise. Let us begin by defining what Nirvana is. Two definitions. A. In Buddhism, a transcendent state in which there is neither suffering, desire, nor sense of self, and the subject is released from the effects of karma and the cycle of death and rebirth. It represents the final goal of Buddhism. B. A state of perfect happiness, an ideal or idyllic place. Jewish nirvana, as we will learn, is different than the nirvana of Buddhism or even than the state of perfect happiness. This is why, according to the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidism, nirvana did not take place in the first Torah portion of Bereshit, in which Adam, Eve, and all of creation were perfectly created by God and were in a state of the perfect Garden of Eden. It is precisely in the second Torah portion of Noah in which the entire world experienced the flood that brought about nirvana. Thus, the modern issue that meets Judaism in this lecture is that of our generation's struggle with a state of agitation and unhappiness and our search for a state of nirvana. What we will discover in this lecture is that the direction to Jewish nirvana is quite different and in a way quite the opposite than the direction to conventional nirvana. Let us begin with introducing two mystical teachings from the Holy Zohar and the mystical connection between them. These are the offspring of Noah. Noah was a tzaddik, a righteous man. That's how the Torah portion of Noah begins, upon which the Zohar says, opened Rabchia and said, and you people, all of them righteous. The Zohar is defining that when the verse says that Noah was a tzaddik, a righteous man, it is referring to every Jew. And thus it quotes the verse from Isaiah, And you people, all of them righteous, shall inherit the land forever. Come and see, all of Israel has a portion in the world to come. As our sages teach upon this verse of Isaiah, that shall inherit the land forever, that every Jew has a portion in the world to come. Why? Because they heed the covenant upon which the world exists. All who heed the covenant upon which the world stands is called a tzaddik, a righteous one. How do we know this? From Joseph, who heeded the covenant. Now the Zohar here is referring to the covenant of the circumcision in a metaphoric way of sexual conduct. And the Zohar is referring to how Joseph overcame the temptation of the wife of his master, Potiphar. And therefore merited to be called a tzaddik. And for this is the meaning of the verse in Isaiah, And your people, all of them, righteous. The Zohar is defining that when the verse says that Noah was a tzaddik, it is referring to every Jew, shall inherit the land forever. Right after this teaching, the Zohar brings another teaching concerning the very first word of the word these. Rabbi Eliezer said, what, wherever it says these, 
right? That's the beginning of the verse in our Torah portion. These are the offspring of Noah. So the Zohar says, Rabbi, whenever it says these, it comes to negate the prior. We learned, what does it say prior? And it means in the previous Torah portion. In Genesis it says, And a river came out of Eden to irrigate the garden, and from there it separated into four fountainheads. Okay, thus our Torah portion of Noah, beginning with these, negate that of the previous, which says the river going out of Eden to irrigate the garden. Thus, we need to understand what these mystical teachings are saying and what the connection between the two is. It is through understanding this that we will find the broad highway to Jewish nirvana. Let us begin by understanding the deeper message of the story of Noah on a personal level. The Holy Zohar teaches us that Noah came to along to rectify that which was lacking in Adam. What does this mean? And it is important to point out that this teaching is even speaking of what was lacking in Adam prior to his sin of eating from the tree of knowledge. At the very point of Adam being created, there was something lacking in Adam. And what we are going to discover here is that it was Jewish nirvana which was lacking in Adam. The word Noah in Hebrew means rest. As a matter of fact, at the end of the portion of Genesis, the Torah tells us the reason of why Noah's father called him Noah. Here's what the verse says. And he named him Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands from the ground which the Lord has cursed. End of the verse. Commentaries explain that the rest that Noah brought mankind is that he created the plow, which brought rest to people from the curse that Adam's sin brought that, and let's quote the verse of what God told Adam when he ate from the tree of knowledge, With toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life, and it will cause thorns and thistles to grow for you. End verse. So Noah brought rest from the curse of Adam's sin upon the land that it was so difficult to plow by creating the plow, the machine. However, the mystical interpretation of the word rest manifests itself primarily into two categories of rest. So let's see what mysticism has to say about rest, Noah. A. The first level. Rest can come only in relationship to work that after one works, he rests. On a more mystical level, this means that while a person is working and engaging with the outside, all the faculties of his soul is driven outward from their source within the soul and are being manifested within whatever work the person is doing. After the person finishes his work, the state of rest is that of all his soul's faculties of will, intellect, and emotions returning into their source within this soul where they are replenished and rejuvenated. Thus, the Shabbat experience in which God says concerning Himself, and let's read the verse, and God completed on the seventh day His work that He did, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He did. Now, mystically this means 
that in the process of creation in which and God said, let there be light, let there be this, meaning that God was giving forth His infinite light to illuminate outwards. God said He was talking to the outside. And then God rested in which the infinite light returned within its source, the essence of God, where it was replenished and rejuvenated. This work and rest of the infinite light of God is the ebb and flow of creation. Thus, on this level, rest is the return within one's source, where he is rejuvenated and replenished. This level of rest is brought about by the abstinence of work after the work was done. This lower experience of rest is the Friday night experience of Shabbat, in which we are simply abstaining and shedding our soul's faculties of work and allowing our soul's faculties to return to their source within the essence of our soul to be replenished and rejuvenated. That is the first and lower definition of rest. The higher mystical interpretation of rest is that of pleasure. This level of rest is not the absence of work, but rather it is in its own positive experience of a higher state of being. This higher experience of rest is the Shabbat morning experience of Shabbat, and even more so the Shabbat afternoon experience of Shabbat, after the soul's faculties have shed their descent into work, and have after the soul's faculties have been replenished and rejuvenated within their source, now they are open and ready to embrace the higher experience of rest, which is the higher experience, the highest experience of the human soul, pleasure. The depth of Noah building the ark and then entering into the ark is all about Noah bringing the higher experience of Shabbat to the world. And this is what Jewish Nirvana is all about. Let us understand this and in most practical terms. But first, a bit more mysticism is needed. The mysticism of the verse in Genesis which said, And a river went out from Eden to irrigate the garden, and from there it separated into four fountainheads. In the mystical insights upon Eden, the river, the garden, and upon the separation into four fountainheads, there are many intricate details. However, I will keep it to its simplest sense. Eden represents the highest level of the infinite light, upon which the prophet Isaiah states, No eye has ever seen her, God, besides you. From Eden comes forth a river, a finite ray of this Eden, the river, to irrigate the garden. Kabbalists describe Eden as the highest depths of wisdom from which a ray, the river, comes forth to vivify and nourish, irrigate, understanding the garden. And this is with the primordial and this is within the primordial state of creation as we know creation. Creation as we know it exists not in the higher intellectual emanations of wisdom and understanding, but in the lower seven emotion emanations of kindness, justice, compassion, all the way to kingship. However, creation could not exist in the finite state that we know it until it separated from the primordial garden of Eden, the higher intellectual emanations. 
Thus God created that after the infinite light feeds the higher intellectual emanations, it then separates and creates, vivifies, and sustains the lower finite four worlds, which are made up of the spiritual worlds of the souls and angels and of the one physical world that we live in. And so it was in the previous portion of Genesis. However, this point of separation from the primordial infinite light in order to create a worldly finite light comes with its potential danger. Separation from having absolute transparency and unity with God can manifest itself in a separation of ego, rebellion, and sin. And so it was. In the previous Torah portion of Genesis, that Adam and Eve fell into sin, eating from the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge. Let us now understand what Noah has come to fix in what was missing in Adam. Adam was the absolute perfect God-made human, living in the absolute perfect world that was created by God. However, because God precisely wanted a finite systematic world of freedom of choice, which begets the potential of ego, sin, and rebellion, so that the human's choosing of humility, good deeds, and obedience be precious, therefore, God's perfect world contained the shadow side of separation. This is what Adam was missing even before Adam actually sinned, which fully manifested and actualized through Adam's sin. Noah's job was to fix not only the outcome of Adam's sin, but even its potentiality within Adam's soul. How was Noah to accomplish this? by building and then entering into the ark. Allow me to just share with you a quick Kabbalistic teaching about the ark. The fact that the animals in the ark lived in peace with each other is because within the ark there was the radiance of Mashiach, the essence of Eden, of which no eye has ever seen her, God, beside you. And therefore, in the ark, where there was the revelation radiance of Mashiach, there was the promise of Isaiah, and a wolf shall live with a lamb, and a leopard shall lie with a kid, and a calf and a lion cub, and a fatting shall, sit, shall lie together. That manifests itself in the ark. So, now that we know the power of which was within the ark, now let us look into the secret of the ark and how to practically create this reality with our within our individual and personal lives. Let's look at the verse that describes how the ark is to be built. And this is the size you shall make it, 300 cubits the length of the ark, 50 cubits its breadth, and 30 cubits its height. And to a cubit you shall finish it to the top. By the way, a cubit is a measurement which there's arguments um, between one foot, a foot and a half, to two feet. Uh, most often we follow the opinion of 18 inches is a cubit, a foot and a half. Let's get back to our study. These are the measurements that God commanded Noah to build the ark with and to have the ark made up of three stories, the bottom being for the trash, the middle for the animals, and the top for Noah and his family. Let's return to mystical interpretations for a moment to connect this measurements with all that you have just learned. 
The number three mystically represents the three intellects of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. The number ten represents how the intellect is in full maturity, made up of a total compilation of all its faculties, the three intellects and the seven emotions. Thus, the height of the ark being thirty cubits represents Noah's ascending within himself to the full maturity of his higher intellects. However, this is not enough, and Noah must ascend into the primordial intellects of his soul, finding total unity with God. And this is what the length of the ark being 300 cubits represents, in which the higher intellects are experiencing the supernal crown's three intellects of 3 times 10 times 10, the fullness of the hundreds, 300. Most importantly is that Noah must connect and embrace the absolute unity of Eden, which lies hidden within the last measurement, which is, and to a cubit, singular, one, and to a cubit you shall finish it to the top. End quote of the verse. This is what Noah must first ascend to from the lower emotional complexity of his reality within a world of egocentric rebellion and sin. However, Adam was born into that already, and obviously it wasn't enough, for this still allowed for the shadow of separation to happen again, if the world of the finite three stories is to exist. So, Adam's ascending all the way up through the 30, through the 300, into the oneness of Eden on top, that still doesn't fill what Adam was lacking, because Adam also experienced that. Thus, let's go further. That which goes up must come down. What I mean by this is that once Noah climbed up to the and to a cubit you shall finish it to the top, Noah must now descend back into the finite three stories. Only this time, Noah must eliminate the shadow of separation through thoroughly illuminating the shadow of separation with the one cubit at the top. What does that mean? The Hebrew word for cubit is Amma. Three Hebrew letters, Aleph, Mem, He, Amma. Which Hasidus tells us is the acronym for the words Elokeinu Melech Ha'olam. God is king of the world. Thus, once Noah reached into the oneness and unity of God's essence of and to a cubit, you shall finish it to the top, Noah now has to realize that in this essence of oneness, this Amma on top, there is no difference between the infinite light and the finite worlds. Rather, it is Noah's job to bring forth that the God is the king of the world. Thus, Noah wants... I'm sorry. Ooh, <coughs> I'm sorry. Noah, once the descends, brings with him this oneness of the cubit, the Amma essence with him through the 300, through the 30, and into the separation of the three stories. By doing so, Noah has illuminated the shadow of separation, which is the potential of having ego, sin, and rebellion. For Noah has now illuminated the separation with the unity of proclaiming God as the king of the separated world. 
Thus, to bring this entire lecture into full circle, we can say that building the ark from bottom up was Noah's ascending from the chaos and shadow of separation up into the one cubit of oneness and unity with God. This is the Friday night rest of the abstinence of work in which the faculties are returning into their essence source to be replenished and rejuvenated. Once Noah has connected with the ultimate essence of true oneness and unity, which is beyond the limitations and differences of infinite and finite, Noah now descends back into the finite world, only this time he brings into the finite world of complexity the truest humility, good deeds, and obedience that God is king of the world. This is the truest sense of rest of Shabbat morning and especially of Shabbat afternoon with the deepest pleasure rest of being one with God exists. In closing, let us now return to the conventional understanding of nirvana, then let us see what Jewish nirvana is and how to reach and experience Jewish nirvana. We previously defined conventional nirvana as A in Buddhism, a transcendent state in which there is neither suffering, desire, nor sense of self, and the subject is released from the effects of karma and the cycle of death and rebirth, it represents the final goal of Buddhism. We also quoted the second definition of nirvana as a state of perfect happiness, an ideal or idyllic place. However, what we learned in this lecture is that Jewish nirvana is experienced precisely within the three stories of self, where we embrace and experience all the feelings and nuances of self, only that we experience it with humility, unity, and transparency to the Amma, Elokeinu Melech Olam, God is the King of the World. As a matter of fact, what we precisely realize in this lecture is that Jewish nirvana is not experienced in the ascent into the transcendent state from the sense of self into the oneness on top of the ark. Rather, Jewish nirvana is only experienced in the descent into the conscious state of sense of self, illuminated with the tangible living with God as king of the world. This is precisely why when a Jew comes to a rabbi bemoaning how he isn't feeling spiritual, the rabbi doesn't tell him to take an oath of silence, meditation, and abstinence. Rather, it is quite the contrary. The rabbi will ask this man, when was the last time that he went to visit and cheer up a sick person who was in the hospital? When is the last time that he invited another person to his Shabbos table? The reason for these questions is, that it is only through engaging with the world, illuminating it through actions that testify that God is the king of the world, that a Jew can experience the spiritual bliss of Jewish nirvana. Friends, modernity offers growth, and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers timeless divine solutions. The Jewish mind is where modernity meets Judaism.